Welcome to Present Value. Hello, Present Value listeners. I'm Will Stankwitz, first-year MBA and one of the producers of the podcast. This week, we welcome on a very special guest, Cornell Johnson MBA alum and CFO of the FDIC, Brett Edwards. Brett has over 30 years of experience in the regulatory space and provides a great perspective on the evolution of the banking industry. I must say, I really enjoyed hearing about his experience leading during a financial crisis and how improving his management skills was a matter of survival. In this episode, Brett offers some great lessons learned across a successful career and even shares some thoughts on the most recent GameStop trading saga. If you are at all interested in the future of banking, cryptocurrency's place in banking, and an effective leadership skills, then I think you'll find my conversation with Brett fascinating. I hope you enjoy this episode. Brett, thanks for joining us today on Present Value. Will, thank you. It's, it's great to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you. After graduating from the University of Minnesota, you began your career as an actuarial trainee, working in a field focused on analyzing risk and uncertainty. Considering that passing all actuarial exams takes between seven to 10 years, you decided to leave the field and pursue your MBA at Johnson. As someone who also recently made that difficult choice to pivot career paths, I'm curious to know what was it that motivated you to come to business school and more specifically Johnson? I will say, even in undergraduate school, I I had really thought about getting an MBA eventually, but I did want to get some work experience before I did that. So that opportunity to work in the, I actually worked for a pension and actuarial consulting firm. Um, that was great training. It, you know, it very analytical, a lot of number crunching, a lot of client contact. So it was, it was a great background to have as you got into an MBA program. But uh, I had my eye on doing that, so I wasn't expecting to stay more than a year or two. I ended up staying about two and a half years. Post-MBA, you entered the workforce as a consultant with KPMG, where you spent 10 months before joining the Federal Savings and Loans Insurance Corporation as a bank liquidation specialist. At the time, the savings and loans crisis, the most significant bank's collapse since the Great Depression, was ramping up. Can you tell us more about what led you to start your journey in federal service? Yeah, so I got out of uh, Johnson. I took a, an assignment with KPMG in New York City. I loved it. I was right, working right up on Park Avenue, right by St. Bart's Church up there on Park Avenue. And I had a really good experience there. And, and this is actually a great Johnson School story. So never underestimate the power of your network. I got a call from one of my classmates that I graduated with at, at Johnson, and they said, hey, you, you, know, you really need to come down to D.C. and work with me. The savings and loan situation is really precarious. It's going to be a huge amount of work. It's really going to be interesting. You really ought to think about coming down and, and, and joining me here. So I did go down, I interviewed, and I ended up taking the job. So I, it wasn't my intention to leave KPMG as quickly as I did, but the timing was great. He was absolutely right. And as, as history will show, the savings and loan industry in, in many, many ways collapsed and, and, and at a pretty significant cost to the economy and the taxpayer. So the Federal Savings and Loans Insurance Corporation was abolished by Congress and absorbed into the FDIC, where you work today. We may see the FDIC insured signs on bank branches or on TV commercials. It's certainly a very recognizable name. Can you explain what FDIC stands for and what its responsibilities are? 
Sure. So, you know, as you point out, we're I think we're all familiar with seeing that FDIC symbol, and it's usually displayed displayed pretty prominently at uh, insured financial institutions that you you know see and do business with across the country. So, what does that really mean for you as a, a depositor? Well, what it means is your money's safe up to the insured limit, and you know that brings tremendous peace of mind to the millions of Americans that have money on deposited banks around the country. You know, remember in 1933, that's why we were founded, was there was a significant run on the banks and FDR and the Congress passed legislation to create the FDIC so that people could know that their money is safe in, in the banks. No one's ever lost a penny of their insured deposit when a bank has failed since our creation. And, you know, we're, we're really proud of that fact. And we certainly are intending to bring our record in that regard forward. It really does contribute significantly. I think people don't quite understand that to the country's financial stability. So let me just talk for a second about, you know, again, our, 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 our goal is to maintain stability and public confidence in the na nation's financial system. But what do we do? We insure deposits. We examine and supervise financial institutions for safety and soundness and then, of course, consumer protection. And we also work to make large and complex financial institutions resolvable. And finally, we manage receiverships. And just a little, a little more on us. The, the great thing about the way they set up the FDIC was we are an independent federal corporation. And so we're funded by the insurance premiums that we collect from the banks on a quarterly basis, which means we don't use taxpayer funding. And the good thing about that, in addition to the fact that we don't cost the taxpayers any money, is that we have this distinct operating model within the federal government. And that really affords us the freedom and flexibility to operate and respond really rapidly in times of crisis. And if you look back on the performance that we had during the two most recent financial crises, and that's the savings and loan crisis that you mentioned in the late 80s and early 90s, and then, of course, the crisis in 2008, I think most people would agree the FDIC played a pretty valuable part in staving off what could have been a really significant calamity from a financial standpoint. So anyway, that's sort of a thumbnail sketch of what the FDIC does and, and why I love working here. And really, throughout your time at the FDIC, you have held many roles across several economic cycles. You were the chief investment officer during the dot-com bubble and director of the Division of Resolutions and Receiverships, the area of the FDIC that focuses on failed banks, during the 2008 recession when many banks failed. Today, you are the CFO during a very different type of economic uncertainty fueled by, of course, the COVID pandemic. Living and working through these ups and downs, what have you learned? Let me just talk briefly about, you know, sort of from a career perspective, how I got where I am. As you mentioned, you know, I, I started at the FSLIC and then as part of the FDIC, I worked pretty exclusively in selling failed bank assets to, to into the market to recover as much money as we could to minimize the losses from those bank failures. So that was really, really interesting. It's very, very fun work from my perspective. And then when that crisis abated, I switched over into the finance area and got a chance to, as you mentioned, manage the fund, which now stands at about $118 billion. And I also oversaw our 401k plan and some other things like that. But um, I did become the finance director in 2007. So I, I had that job for about a year. And then the 2008 crisis hit us. 
And I wanted to just say a quick thing about that, because you were talking about lessons you learned through, through this career progression. It, it's just almost hard to describe what it was like to be at the FDIC during those days. You know, the, one of the largest bank failures we ever had, which is IndyMac Bank, happened in July of 2008. And that was shortly followed by Fannie and Freddie going into conservatorship and then the failure of Lehman Brothers. Almost, you know, the near demise of AIG, the failure of WAMU, the near failure of Wachovia. And then, of course, ultimately, the government lent some uh, support to both Bank of America and Citibank. So think about all that happening in the space of, you know, a six-month period. It was just indescribable. And I really, I got to tell you, I give a lot of credit to people like Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner, Ben Bernanke, uh, Sheila Bear, and others. They, they really showed tremendous leadership and, and courage and took swift and innovative action to, to stop the crisis from becoming something way worse than it could have been. I think there's an underappreciation for that. And then, as you indicated, I became the director of the Division of Resolutions, and that was in uh, 2011. I would say that you know a lot of the worst of the crisis was behind us. We did have you know, well over 500 bank failures during the crisis. And in fact, on my first year in the job as the division director for resolutions, we had 92 failures. So you do the math, that's, that's a lot of failures in space of a one year. But we did manage all those bank failures. We, we made sure the depositors got their money. Oftentimes we were able to sell these failed banks on a whole bank basis. So we didn't have to do an insurance determination. And we tried very hard to keep as much of the assets in the private sector as possible. So it was a you know a very incredibly rewarding and busy time in my career and had a great team working with me that we accomplished quite a bit. After doing that work for about eight years, I did return to my first love, which is finance and accounting. Our CFO retired and I decided to step into his job. And I will say, you know, because of the background I had, I really got a chance to gain a broad agency-wide perspective, which I really think is so crucial when you are trying to be an effective finance leader. If you haven't worked in a line division at some point, I think it really detracts from your ability to add value as a CFO. That's, that's my own bias. You have to understand the main business lines of your company, how it operates, and then you know forming those deep professional and personal relationships across the organization. That's really what allows you to succeed. So um, it's, it's really been a, a really interesting. It's been a fun journey. And I will say the FDIC has taken such great care of me. They've, they've given me a lot of cool jobs and I've just had a wonderful time. You talk about leading effectively also throughout your time. And I was, I was curious that during your career, you've led a variety of divisions and teams I'm going to hit you with a question that I got numerous times during job interviews. How would you characterize your leadership style? Leading in a crisis teaches you a lot of valuable lessons. You have to learn how to make decisions in conditions of incredible uncertainty, right? And I, you know, certainly one thing you you will learn is waiting for perfect information is kind of a fool's errand. When you're working in crisis conditions and you're leading in crisis conditions, you, you really start to hone your skills quickly as a matter of survival. So I, I developed a really good skill for spotting and rec recruiting and nurturing talent because really you can only succeed through the extraordinary efforts of others, especially when you're in that kind of situation. You know, you, you make a lot of mistakes, but you learn to move on and fight the next battle. And hopefully you're a little wiser for the lessons you learned. 
and you learn to be resilient. The world will throw all kinds of curveballs at you, but you just, you know, you, you learn that it's how you react that really matters. And, you know, you have to remember as a leader, people are watching you. They're watching your behavior, your attitude, your work ethic, and importantly, the way you treat others. You know, there's an old adage, model the behavior you wish to see in others. And that's worked really well for me. I also think it's important to inject humor into a lot of things you do. Remember to smile. I mean, people love to be around people that are fun. And if working with you and for you is fun, half the battle is over as, as far as your leadership abilities goes. I do think you need to celebrate um, your team's accomplishments. You are always asking a lot of your team, so don't overlook the need to let them know how appreciative you are of what they do and how they do it. But in terms of actual style, I think successful leaders, and I've tried to do this, I'm honest, I'm direct, I'm humble, I'm grateful, I'm compassionate, and I try to be generous. I try to be clear about objectives and expectations. You know, what do you want people to do? When do you want them to do it by? And what are the limitations that um, we're all operating under? Those are, those are really important questions. People, people really want clarity about what's expected of them. The other thing is touch base frequently with people. You know, it's very easy to get consumed by your calendar. Your calendar gets filled with meetings. You're like, oh, my God, I'm drowning in meetings. Don't forget to touch base with people and just check, check to see how they're doing, how you're doing, what's going on. You really learn a lot that way. I think one of the hardest things about being a leader, and it's one of the things people don't particularly love to do, it's learning to give candid, actionable feedback. Honestly, you've got a lot of good people working for you, and they really want to improve. But you have to do your job as a coach and let them know what they need to be working on. Um, and that's, those aren't always easy conversations to have, but they, they're necessary conversations. And then probably the final thing I'd say on leadership, it always seems to be an afterthought for a lot of people because they get so busy. And we're all really busy in this, you know, wired world. Your, you know, your primary responsibility, of course, you need to get your work done, but it's developing others. So that, you know, honestly, you should be working yourself out of a job and succession management shouldn't be an afterthought. It should really be a priority that you kind of work into your day-to-day -day operating model. So those, those are kind of the, the thoughts I ha have about leadership and, and what's worked for me. And thinking about all of these positions, you mentioned that we, when we spoke to earlier that you had not necessarily expected to stay in one place for so long. Did you ever seriously consider making a move to a leadership role at a bank or similar private institution? Yes. Yeah. So I actively interviewed at several points in my career and you know, got to the point where I'd almost accepted something. I actually was going to take a CFO job at another agency, another federal agency during the Bush administration. But ultimately, I, I decided against it. I will say this, and without trying to make FDAC sound like nirvana, it, they just, they've treated me so well, and I've had such a great variety of experiences. It just... When it came right down to it, when I was at those those forks in the road about whether I should leave or not, ultimately I decided against it because the opportunities I had to grow and, and do things that I thought were really neat and have a great professional fulfilling job, the FDAC had all those things. And ultimately from a, you know, sort of a cost benefit analysis, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get there. 
Now I want to shift our conversation from the FDIC and your background and talk about some of the big issues and trends the future of the banking industry is facing. First, the digital evolution of banking. Given that digital banking is becoming the new norm in all banks, from big banks to small community banks, can you speak to some of the main challenges in navigating this digital evolution from the perspective of the FDIC? Sure. Yeah, look, the industry's changing at an incredible rate. You know, I, I sometimes wonder how my, my colleagues in the banking industry keep up with it. It's really challenging. I've been at the FDIC for over three decades now. I've never seen the pace of innovation accelerate like it has in the past three or four years. Look, it's a challenge for the banks. It's a challenge for the regulators to stay current on all these new innovations and developments happening across the ecosystem and what does it all mean? And how are we going to keep our, you know, how are we going to get our arms around all this? And where is it all headed? And I should say something too. I, you know, a, a lot of folks are predicted based on all these technological advancements. Uh, and you, you probably read this several times yourself. Well, the rise of all these fintech firms would, you know, absolutely lead to the demise of the banking industry. So all these uh, uh, disruptors show up and it's like, well, it's just a matter of time. The banking industry is toast. Um, <laughs> you know, I never believe these um, uh, prognostications like the, that because it, it doesn't really square with the facts. And actually, what you've seen over the last few years is fintechs and banks have learned to coexist and offer and prosper through partnerships, which, you know, obviously makes a lot more sense if you think about it. Yeah, fintechs bring, you know, new technology and speedy delivery to the table, but banks bring a lot. They bring deep customer relationships and access to the payment system. And of course, deposit insurance is one of my favorite things. It's hard to really predict where all this is headed. I, I can talk probably about what I would think are, you know, sort of four different issues that that are really, uh, you know, related to the technological change I was talking about. The first, as you mentioned, is uh, digitization. So I think, um, you know, obviously customers have an increasing preference for dealing with banks digitally and whether it's lending or deposit platforms. And there's no question that there's efficiencies in, in doing business that way. And disruptors have sort of certainly motivated banks to move in that direction for competitive reasons. I, I think the, a lot of the um, improvements have been made, especially something like the, you know, the customer centric features and maybe the affordability and the convenience and instantaneous access to information. Those are all really great things. Um, I also think, you know, if if we can drive costs down, we can we can make some progress on dealing with a significant portion of the population that are underbanked or unbanked. And I think that's great stuff. Adoption of mobile banking has really been pretty good. I think the pandemic, there's no question that the pandemic is going to um, uh, it has and probably will prove to be a real accelerator with respect to that. You know, it's it's really hard to say what we're going to see beyond that. I think. You're going to see banks continue to take advantage of technological innovation. They're going to continue to transform their bank back office operations. I think they're going to demand uh, tech skills from their workforce of the future. There's a lot of reskilling and training going on in the banks right now. Um, but I think, you know, the banks are very competitive. Yes, I, I, you know, I think some of them will even say to you that having all these disruptors uh, attempt to enter or even take over their industry has really been a healthy thing for them. And it's certainly been, uh, I think, a major plus for the customers. Data access and open banking. So that's an increasingly big topic. You know, co consumers are increasingly interested in 
perhaps sharing their financial account data with third parties. You know, we've got a lot of digital financial advisor products out there. And, you know, the question for a lot of people is how do we, in an automated fashion, how do we capture a consumer's financial footprint if it, if it, if the data lays in, you know, lays with several different firms. So definitely I would say, you know, data is the, is sort of the new capital. I mean, this data is very valuable. The banks know a lot about their customers, what their habits are, what their spending patterns are. And uh, that's a very valuable thing for them to have. And I think they can benefit from it. There are other folks, uh, other uh, disruptors and other firms that certainly want to be able to access that information as well. And so that's a, that's a, a, an area that we're really going to be continuing to watch. I think it's going to continue to develop. I would say from a consumer choice and privacy standpoint and security standpoint, to the extent the data from banks is openly shared with customer permissions and, and the appropriate security, that uh, got to make sure that that happens in a responsible way. But I, I think that's a, clearly a very, very big trend in the industry. And it's going to be continue to develop. The machine learning and AI, this is a fascinating area to me. As you know, with the amount of data being created today and the advances in computing power and the ability to utilize um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to really advance people's uh, understanding of, of the data and what it means and what it could mean for development of new products and potential for more profitable products. Look, the financial institutions and the technology firms, they're all exploring ML, machine learning and AI, artificial intelligence. And I think that's going to continue from a regulator standpoint. Of course, we want to make sure that to the extent that these products start to get infused into the ecosystem, that people understand the risks involved in using them and they understand the impact, the downstream impact on consumers. I think there are some models that have been, you know, put into service and, you know, we have to be very careful that these things are, are utilized responsibly so that, uh, you know, they are, that all the consumer protection laws and regulations are respected as these things proliferate. But are they great uh, developments? Absolutely. Are they going to revolutionize banking? Very, very possible. And then the final thing I just want to talk about was personalization. You know, because of this, uh, the explosive growth in technology, of course, customers now, it's like, of course, I expect 24-7, 100% reliable connectivity with my financial service provider, and I expect personalized services. You know, I want to be able to access you uh, on my mobile device. I want you to know a lot about me so that you offer me products that I'd be interested in. And all that's going to, you know, that's all wound up in, in, their, in the bank's ability to not only store the data, but perform all kinds of data analytics on the data. And, you know, it's a two-way street. I think it gives banks a lot of insight and, and potential for more products, newer, better products, more profitable products. But it also should improve the banking customer's experience with the bank. So I think that's a win-win. I just want to say real quickly, you know, how does the FDIC, how in the world does the FDIC stay on top of all this? And the answer is we are working like our tails off to do that. We have an internal task force, emerging technology task force, and it's a group of people across all disciplines that meets on a regular basis. And all we do is talk about innovations in the industry, what new firms are doing what, who's partnering with who, what new products are coming online, what are the implications of those products, how do we need to change our 
supervisory strategy to make sure that we've that we're taking account of these new products. So these are all things that we're doing. So we're we're, we're we've got a task force that's looking at that constantly. Obviously, we are recruiting people with those the kinds of skills we need that understand all these things that are going on in the industry and are staying on top of them. We're also training our people. Not always easy, by the way, because these folks are in very high demand. And then we have some other internal initiatives that I can touch on later. But uh, I know that's a long-winded answer, but it is such an incredibly exciting time to be in the banking industry right now. If you had gone to credit training when I got out of Cornell and you, you'd gone to Chase Bank at that time, you wouldn't even recognize the banking industry of today. It's just, it's just incredible. Certainly the evolution of the banking industry is, as you said, incredible. And the many features definitely make my life easier. I, I especially enjoy being able to check check my account from my phone in between class or make any quick payments and instantly receive money. It, it certainly makes life a lot easier. Uh, one thing that you did mention that really I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on is traditionally in retail banking, we'll see cer certain types of banks being community banks like Tompkins County Trust Company or big banks like Chase and Bank of America. And I really imagine that there's a strong competitive advantage for community banks to develop relationships with local customers. So as the digital transformation really takes over in the industry, how are community banks going to really be able to maintain these relationships while it's still expanding digitally? Yeah, it's it's a there's no question community banks have a significant challenge ahead of them as they try to navigate this new world. But let me just give you a little background. So, you know, the FDIC, of course, is the primary federal regulator for the lion's share of community banks in the country. And that's because we're the primary federal regulator of all state chartered, what we call non-member banks. That means they're not members of the Federal Reserve. And there are thousands of those. So anyway, we know these banks really well, and we know the space they operate in really well. And I can tell you, you know, I've been, again, in the banking industry uh, as a regulator and liquidation professional for 30 plus years. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard about people predicting the imminent demise of the community banking model. Oh, you know, they're, they're just not competitive anymore. They're all going to go away. And it's always been inaccurate. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to just let your listeners know. So the FDIC just published a study in December of 2020 on community banks, and it had some great findings. This is a study that we're, we updated. I think the last one we did, I believe, was in 2014. But, you know, surprise, no surprise here. Community banks, as you just indicated, they play a significant role in the banking system and our nation's economy. And, you know, look, of course, there's been a lot of consolidation in the community bank space. But, you know, one of the things the study points out is the non-community banks were actually more likely to disappear over the last six or seven years than community banks. Uh, certainly, by number, community banks—you know—the most number, the most by number, the most banks in the U.S. In terms of uh, total share of assets, as you just pointed out, the big guys have the lion's share of the assets. So the total number percentage of assets in the industry for community banks has declined. But you know, I'll get, let me give you one of my favorite statistics. I love talking about this. Despite only holding 15% of total industry assets in 2019, community banks held. 36% of the banking industry's small business loans. So your point about Tompkins Community Bank is absolutely on target. Community banks, because of that, think about that, 36% of small business loans, they play such a critical role in supporting our economy. 
as you know, they have the intimate knowledge of their customers and they know how to responsibly support many of the small businesses that, you know, really make up the lifeblood of a lot of communities around the United States. But yeah, on the technology question, there's no question community banks are going to be challenged to adopt new technologies. They, they lack the scale, they lack the resources, and they have challenges in procuring and retaining the necessary talent to, you know, sort of go it on their own for, you know, in a lot of the, the areas I was just referring to, like AI, ML, or, you know, the digitization trend. So, but I, I will say this, I think what you've seen is a number of community banks that collaborate and partner with fintechs. And I expect that trend to continue. You know, fintechs bring a lot to the table in terms of their expertise, but community banks bring those relationships. And, you know, that's what's really valuable to a profitable partnership. So, I think you're going to see a lot of collaboration. Yes, they're competitors, but they're also collaborators. And, you know, community banks are going to have to adopt cutting edge tools because that's the customer preferences are headed in that direction. But I think what we're seeing, honestly, from my vantage point, they're, they're rising to that challenge. And in some cases, they're actually thriving as a result of the actions they're taking. You know, certainly the FDIC is doing everything it can from its vantage point to facilitate responsible of adoption of new technologies by community banks, because we want them to remain competitive and continue to thrive. We, we think they do play a really central role in the nation's economy. And so let me just say quickly, you know, we just are on the cusp of hiring a chief innovation officer at the FDIC, and we have a um, initiative called FDI Tech which is our innovation initiative. And what we're really trying to do is facilitate to the extent we can the development and deployment of technology across the community uh, bank space and the banking space in general, but especially the community bank space so that we can help reduce maybe the barriers that they have to, to adopting that technology. And certainly we want to reduce the regulatory cost of innovation for community banks. So we are really centered on that and very excited about the FDI Tech Initiative and the onboarding of our, our first chief innovation officer, which is should be announced shortly. Wow, a lot of a lot of great information there. And hearing about the FDI Tech and the innovation moving forward to ease some of the regulatory restrictions on uh, community banks, it definitely emphasizes the importance of community banks, and that's great to hear. Uh, I know we've touched on fintech a little bit, but I'd love to shift gears fully towards that area and to bring up a couple of my favorite topics in that space, especially cryptocurrency. Banks have always operated using a government-backed form of currency. I bet you really know where I'm going with this one. Bitcoin. This week, Tesla announced its investment in Bitcoin and a willingness to accept it as payment in the future. PayPal and Square also allow users to purchase Bitcoin on their platforms. Bitcoin has showed its resilience despite its volatility, and it's hard to imagine at this point that it's going anywhere. What are your thoughts on the use of cryptocurrency and its role in banking? Yeah, think about the timing on this, too. I'm trying to remember when that white paper was written by the Japanese gentleman that you know, first um, gave rise to the whole distributed ledger technology. I think it was in 2008, ironically. So just as the crisis was starting. So think about that. It's from the time that paper was written and circulated to where we are today in 2021, what has happened. It's just uh, unfathomable. So I have some thoughts. Uh, and again, you know, uh, uh, my thoughts are my own thoughts on this, obviously. But uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that distributed ledger technology, uh, you know, upon which cryptocurrency depend is, in some form is here to stay. Um, 
I, I think there's significant promise in the benefits of distributed ledger technology and cryptocurrencies and what they have to offer. I, there's no question. Um, I also think there's a number of challenges, and those challenges have to really be dealt with effectively as we move forward in order to um, really think about a widespread adoption of cryptocurrencies, especially as a medium of exchange. Um, and it's great, Tesla, you know, a more my hat off to him. You know, I know there are vendors out there that take cryptocurrency um, in, as a form of payment, and it, it's, it's certainly a, a viable thing to do. I think there's some challenges with it, but um, maybe I should just start out. I, I think a lot of times people talk about crypto assets and, and, you know, just as a definition, you know, for me, a crypto asset is just a medium of exchange, right? And it operates in some environments, um, but, it, but it doesn't have, as you point out, it doesn't have attributes, some of the attributes of a traditional currency. It doesn't have a legal status, you know, per se. Um, it's traded digitally, and importantly, it doesn't have a government guarantee. Um, you know, it relies on a decentralized system to record transaction, transactions. And as you know, um, you know, with the encryption keys, it relies on cryptography. So um, a little bit of a different animal. Um, no one can dispute, look, and I'd be the last to do that. No, as I just said, start back to 2008. Nobody can dispute the growth of crypto assets that, is, that they've undergone over the last several years. Uh, and certainly there are indications now, especially that investment professionals are increasingly looking at cryptocurrency as a viable asset class, right? As they get more comfortable with the risks associated with investing in those kinds of assets. Um, I, I don't think there's any dispute crypto assets have had a really nice price appreciation run, especially of late. I mean, if you look at what Bitcoin has done since September, it's somewhat uh, astounding, honestly. Um, but as I mentioned, I think there's some challenges. Um, I, you know, there was a point early on when Bitcoin came out where, again, the, the prognosticators were out there saying, OK, this is it. Um, you know, we're not we're not we're not going to have any more um, money. We're not going to have any more central banks. Um, and, you know, they were predicting this, you know, sort of rapid adoption of of of, of cryptocurrency across the world. Um, and as, as I just said, you know, there's a lot of challenges. Certainly, <laughs> certainly one of them is price volatility. So in order for these things to be widely accepted as a true medium of exchange, right, greater price stability is just going to have to be achieved. Um, you know, transaction costs are, are, are relatively high right now. That certainly could go down with volume and, and, and greater technological innovation. But, you know, right now it's not necessarily cost effective for lower dollar transactions to or lower cost transactions to, to use uh, cryptocurrency as, as a form of payment. Uh, you know, additionally, look, governments across the globe, understandably, they have concerns about the use of cryptocurrency, you know, to facilitate terrorism and other illicit activity. Um, I think there's some uh, concerns about the impact uh, on, you know, countries' monetary policy and their ability to control, you know, their, their individual economies um, if this stuff was to really take off in any, any wide-scale way. So those are, you know, those are legitimate concerns by people that matter. Um, and uh, I would make a, you know, sort of an eco point, which is crypto assets really consume an incredible amount of electric power. Um, you know, and that the cryptography comes at a significant cost, certainly not a great thing from an environmental perspective. And again, I'm no uh, crypto expert or engineer, but I think that's something that's going to have to be dealt with. And then I would say, too, 
you know, with any like any system, when you look at the volume of transactions across the world on, on a given day, it's incredible how many transactions are 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 um, are, are uh, affected every day in the world. Um, so if you you talk about how scalable are the cryptocurrencies, um, you know it, it's it's far from clear that that um, that cryptocurrencies could whole scale replace what we've got in place today. I think you know. So in in any event, I think I've mentioned some of the challenges that at least I see, and I know people are working to uh, to overcome those challenges. And there's a lot of innovation going on in that space. Um, you know, are we going to get to a place where cryptocurrencies um, you know, disintermediate the banks, and uh, we're in a whole different world there. It's it's certainly possible, um, but I I would say this, you know, at the pace of innovation we're seeing today, you wonder what disruptor is out there that's going to disrupt the cryptocurrencies. Now again, the banking industry is is uh, certainly um, you know starting to look at this. There's been a lot of developments at the OCC and. Um, you know, um, and, and talking, you know, um, discussions about custodying cryptocurrency and those kinds of things. Absolutely, I think the banking industry is going to play a role here, but it's, I think it's too early to say exactly what that role is and how this is all going to play out. You raise a great question about what is going to disrupt cryptocurrency. And in this world of rapid innovation that is so dynamic, it's unpredictable. I guess that's the beauty of it, though. Shifting quickly to current events, one topic that has been all over the news recently is the GameStop trading through fintech brokerage Robinhood. Many consumers were participating in the buying frenzy and helped drive the price up in the short term. This is just one example of fintechs really changing the game. Considering this fintech disruption, do you think consumer protection will be emphasized and regulated going forward? Yeah, um, so... Yeah, of course. Look, all prudential financial regulators, and of course, you know, you're using the GameStop example. That's sort of out of my bailiwick, simply because you know that's that's more in the uh, probably in the realm of the SEC. Um, but uh, you know, to, to Secretary Yellen's credit, she's been on the job all of ten days or a week or whatever that is. She's already called a, a, a group of folks together, at, you know, government wide, to sort of. Uh, take a look at, okay, exactly what happened, how did it happen, who was involved, and what, if anything, should the government be doing about it? I, I give her tremendous credit for that, and I think she's doing exactly the right thing. Um, uh, you know, all prudential financial regulators, including the FDIC, we're, we're all laser-focused on ensuring that um, innovations are rolled, that as innovations are rolled out and adopted by, especially by our insured financial institutions, that consumers are protected from, you know, harm, and you know the disclosures around the um, surrounding the product offerings are clear and they're, you know, fully compliant with the law. Of course, we want that. Now there are, you know, a lot of fintechs are not necessarily, um, you, you know, fall under the purview of uh, of our particular agency. So, you know, of course, we will watch and make sure that we're where our banks are partnering with folks like that, that they're very uh, aware of the risks and that they're acutely aware of any potential consumer protection issues, you know, associated with that. Um, but I will say this, of course, we want to make sure the consumer is protected. At the same time, we don't want to be an impediment, right, to safe and sound safe and responsible innovation in the industry. So we really want to facilitate um, 
this, you know, this innovation because it's going to help the industry keep pace with the changes in the financial ecosystem. And honestly, you know, consumers are getting, you know, they're getting a lot of advantages out of, out of all these um, innovations. As you said, they really are beneficiaries. But we just want to make sure that the innovation is done in a responsible and thoughtful way. And that's really what our job is. Um, we all should recognize, look, innovation by its very nature involves risk. So inevitably, there will be some unexpected consequence and bumps in the road as we move towards a more automated and hopefully more consumer-friendly banking experience. And our job as regulators as best we can is just to work in close partnership with the industry and with the fintechs to you know, assess the risks and work to minimize the potential harm to consumer. Notice I said minimize, I didn't say zero it out because we, we are balancing competing objectives here. Um, I would say our sister agency at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau also known as the CFPB, uh, you know, Dodd-Frank gave them a lead role in writing many of the rules that protect consumers. Um, and we regularly consult with them on a range of consumer protection issues. As a matter of fact, the director of the CFPB is an ex officio member of our board of directors. So we have a pretty close partnership with them. Uh, look, I think it's a big challenge to keep pace with the continual changes in the industry wrought by technology. But, you know, we as regulators have done a good job, I think, so far of staying focused on consumer protection while also uh, remaining cognizant, you know, of our mandate to help foster innovation. Thanks so much, Brett. Appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Present Value Podcast, an independent student-run podcast founded, created, and produced by MBA students at Cornell University. Hope you enjoyed this episode hosted by me, Will Stankwitz, and produced by Christine Gabrellian and Paul Whitko. Until next time, thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the FDIC.